Glad you guys are here. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here if we haven't had a chance to meet yet. And I hope, hope you had an awesome Easter. Uh, man, I, I, know, I don't know about you guys. Hopefully you got to join us last week. We were at the, the Civic Center and it was so cool to see our whole church family in one room at the same time. It's just something we don't ever get to do, right? And it was, it was just a powerful, powerful morning. And, and God, uh, God was definitely in the room. And I hope, I hope you guys had an awesome day with family. Maybe you got to spend some time watching little kids look around the yard for plastic eggs, um, most of which are in plain sight. I don't know what kind of hunt that is. But uh, in fact, J- Jennifer, my wife, was cleaning out our flower beds the other day, and she found three Easter eggs. Uh, the only problem is we haven't had Easter at our house for like 10 years, and I'm not exaggerating that. Either someone was the best hider ever, or we're just not good at flower beds. I'm not sure which is, is true there, but you know, we're, we're getting back to the book of Luke. You know, we've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter for a while uh, through the book of Luke. We're all the way up to the middle of chapter 17. And, uh, you know, Jesus is, is continuing his ministry. He's, he's continuing his kind of journey to the cross at this point. He's on his final trip to Jerusalem. Um, he, he's traveling all throughout Galilee, healing every kind of, of disease and sickness. People are, are bringing the, the sick and the lame and the, the deaf and the, the blind and the, the demon possessed. And Jesus is healing people. He's drawing massive crowds. And then as he's got their attention, he teaches and he teaches about the kingdom of God. And, um, you, know, you know, when it comes to, to scripture, especially when it, it comes to Jesus healing people, that, that one act of healing, it's very rarely just about that one thing. Does that make sense? So, so healing in scripture, it's a sign. And what do signs do? Signs point you to something else. At the very minimum, what these healings are doing are pointing to Jesus' divinity, right? That the fact that he is who he says that he is. He is the son of God, and he's doing these things through the, the power of God. But, but many times, it's pointing to even something, something else. And today we're going to see that. It's pointing kind of a, this, to this, this foreshadowing of something even greater, than the healing itself. And that's what we're going to talk about today in Luke 17, verse 11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It'll be on the screen. And as we always say, if you have our city app, there's a message notes section that has all the verses and points and quotes and some fill in the blank stuff. It's a good way to, to not fall asleep. All right. So I uh, asked my buddy Adam to come read our, our verse today. So would you guys stand just in honor of the reading of God's word? Good morning. My name is Adam Reinhardt. Been married to Jackie for 32 years. We have uh, three kids, Joshua, Elizabeth, and Juan, and uh, Sophie. She's a beagle. Uh, at the City Church, we're involved in the prayer ministry. We're also involved in the Alvis Home Group. We host a discovery class at our house, and we just survived the marriage class. So I'll be reading today from Luke 17, 11 through 19. As Jesus continued on towards Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. As he entered a village there, ten men with leprosy stood at a distance, crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. He looked at them and said, Go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus, shouting, Praise God! He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. 
Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. Thank you, Adam. You guys can have a seat. You know, at face value, this is one of those kind of stories that, that seems so simple, right? And you, you might just read right past it, but as always in Scripture, there is so much here, and I can't wait to unpack some of it with, with you guys. And I kind of, again, he's pointing out here that Jesus is continuing on to Jerusalem. It's his final trip there. Um, just for some kind of context, that he, during that trip, he does five different healings, right? This is the fourth of five. This is the second time that he's uh, healed someone of leprosy. But this one's a little bit different because it's a big group of people. It's 10 guys that he heals all at the same time. And so I, I think we kind of have a, a decent understanding of what leprosy is, but I want to talk about it just a little bit. Um, th this is kind of a general term that, that was given to a number of different skin conditions. Uh, the most severe of those was called Hansen's disease. It's still known as that today. It's, it's, it's still around today. Uh, leprosy attacks the skin, peripheral nerves, especially near the wrists, elbows, and knees, and mucous membrane. Gross. Uh, it forms lesions on the skin. It can disfigure the face by collapsing the nose and causing folding of the skin, leading some to call it lion's disease due to the resulting lion-like appearance of the face. And, you know, I thought it would be helpful. I don't want to gross anybody out, but I thought it would be helpful to, to look at a picture of this. Uh, yeah. So apparently it doesn't only affect the skin, but also your bravery, right? Um <laughs> So, so you have this, this physical suffering, right? This is not, this is not a fun time that these, these guys are having. Uh, it's it's a, a miserable existence, but it gets even worse than that because it came along with it kind of this, this social stigma, this, this horrible disfigurement that this disease caused scared people. And it, it caused them to, to be outcast, to be cut off from, from all of society. Lepers were strictly forbidden to come near other people, or to interact with anyone except other lepers. That's why you had leper colonies. That, that was their new group of people, was just other people like them because they couldn't be around anybody else. Uh, the fear of catching it was so great that lepers were barred from Jerusalem or any other walled city. They had to be outside of the city walls. They were forbidden to come within six feet of a healthy person or, with this caveat, or 150 feet if the wind was blowing from their direction. And they were restricted to a special compartment of the synagogue even. They, could, they couldn't worship the way everybody else did. <clears throat> One rabbi refused to eat an egg bought on a street where there was a leper present. Another one encouraged throwing stones at lepers to force them to keep their distance. So you've got physical, just, just excruciating suffering. You have this kind of social stigma. And, and there also came with it these spiritual implications Okay, they, they, they were cut off from family and friends, banned from society, but it was also considered judgment from God for their sin. This was pretty common in, in those days, their, their understanding of things, consistent with their, their, the Jewish belief that suffering was God's punishment for something that you had done wrong, or maybe even something your parents had done wrong. Lepers in biblical times were isolated, not, not only because of the fear, but because they were they were ceremonially unclean. 
In fact, according to religious leaders of the day, leprosy was second only to contact with a dead body in terms of that, that defilement or being, being unclean. One scholar said it this way, not just actual contact with the leper, but even his entrance defiled a house and everything in it to the beams of the roof. If he even put his head into the place, it became unclean. So again, you, you have 10 of these guys. And, and this was just a pathetic, lonely group of, of, of outcasts that were kind of just eking out their, their existence out on the, the fringes of society. But then they see Jesus. They see Jesus, they, they obviously recognize him, right? Because they call him by name. They say, Jesus. And then they call him, him master. And they say, have mercy on us. So they knew his name, but they also called him master. The Greek word for master is this one, epistates. Think that's how you say it? I looked it up. Google doesn't lie, right? So epistates, master. So, so this, is a, this is an important term. Catch this. This term for master, they, they call him, it denotes somebody that has authority or great power. This is a term that was only ever used by his disciples. And here you have this random group of 10 lepers that see something that the disciples see. They recognized his power. They, they knew who he was. They had heard stories. I'm sure they had witnessed some things, albeit from a distance. But their, their disease is incurable. You're talking about a completely hopeless situation. And Jesus, they, they saw in him their, their only chance for relief, their only chance for deliverance. And so, so they muster up all the faith that they can manage, and they cry out to Jesus, have mercy on us. And then what does Jesus do? He, he lays his hands on, the, on, on them and, and heals them, right? Not quite. It says, from a distance, right, because that was the rule, from a distance he tells them, you're healed. No, not even that, right? He says, go show yourself to the priests. What, what is this? You know, what, what, what must they be thinking? See, this is, this is something we miss because we don't really understand the, the Jewish laws and, and customs, but this made sense to them a little bit because in those days, the priest acted kind of like a health inspector, okay? So, so they were, when, when you thought your ailment was improving or maybe you got healed or whatever, you had to go to the priest so he could look you over and kind of, kind of agree and make this judgment call and, and basically deem you back to, back to clean, restored to, to society and, and to worship. So the, the priest kind of acted as this health inspector. So, you know, in keeping with tradition, if if you've got a, a rash or something weird going on with your skin, Clayton will be in the lobby to take a look at it a little bit later, okay? He loves it. I mean, think about this. They, they understand the, 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 the aspect of you got to go see the priest if you're, if you're healed, but they're not healed. Think about that. So, so they, they had to take steps on this journey to Jerusalem to see the priest, but nothing has happened yet. They're having to, to behave as though they're healed, even though they aren't healed. 
And another kind of aspect of this, you know, they've, they knew who he was. They knew he was capable of healing. They've probably seen he- healings before, heard the stories. This looks nothing like any of those other healings. It's completely different. And yet they obey. In fact, if you look at scripture, Jesus almost always healed people a little bit differently from one story to the next. Sometimes he touched them. Sometimes they touched him. One time he made mud with his spit and, and put it on a guy's eyes. Another time he, he healed someone from a, a great distance away because of someone else's faith. So, so the precedent here in scripture is that Jesus always did it differently and sometimes he didn't do it at all. We, we have no reason to believe from scripture that Jesus healed every single person that he came in contact with that, that needed healing. In fact, there, there is some evidence that he did just the opposite. There's a guy in, in, in the, the book of Acts that tells the story. The apostles were coming into the, the, the city, the, the temple gates. There's a man there that has been crippled since birth, and his friends brought him to that gate every single day so that he could beg for, for food or for money or for whatever. Jesus had been through that gate many, many, many times, and yet he was still crippled. The apostles healed him that day. See, we, we have these, these certain groups of, of, when it comes to healing, does God still heal? Yes, he does. Why does everyone not get healed? We, we don't know. But there are certain circles of Christians today that like to take Jesus' ministry of healing and then maybe a couple of verses chosen here or there and, and turn it into some kind of formula for, for guaranteed healing. Like we, we somehow in our own power can muster up enough faith that God will, 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 like will force his hand or something to heal, to heal us, to heal someone else. And it just doesn't work that way. Why does he not heal everyone? We don't know. But we, we have to, as believers, trust in God's sovereignty, that, that he's in control, that he's on the throne, and he has a plan, and he knows what's best. These guys... Even though this situation didn't look like maybe they had dreamed that it would, they still went. They still went to say to the priests, we're healed, even though they hadn't been healed yet. And then it says, as they went, right, they were healed. Jesus was putting their faith to the test here. Just a few verses ago, this would have been a couple of weeks ago in our time, we, Jesus taught about faith. You remember the mustard seed verses, And he's given these guys a chance to put that into practice. And of course, they went in obedience. They were healed as they went. They were all blessed with healing. Here's a little sub point. Obedience brings blessing. Obedience brings blessing. The the Bible is full of if-then statements. Like, if we will A, B, C, God will do this and do that or whatever. If we obey, if we call out to him, if we come to him, if we ask, seek, or knock, God has promised to do all sorts of things. But if we do nothing, if we disobey, if we doubt, if we go our own way, God has promised us absolutely nothing except for maybe death, destruction, pain, penalties, Separation 
from him. I think the bottom line is if, if Jesus says to do something, we should do it. Because obedience brings his blessing into our lives. I also want to, to catch the, the irony here. So, so you have, again, Jesus sending these guys to, to the priest, right? He knows exactly what he's doing here. It, there, there's, there's a little bit more here in the subtext. Who were the priests? Like, were, were the priests fans of Jesus? No, no. They, I mean, they were his biggest adversaries. They, they were the one coming against him, saying that he was even doing his miracles by the work of Satan. Can you imagine? And here you have Jesus sending these guys to, to the very priests that, that reject him, that would eventually be part of, of killing him, and they would be forced to confirm his miracle. They'd be forced to basically confirm that he, he has supernatural power and he was, he was being obedient to the Jewish law. I mean, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. So they all go, they all get healed, and then, of course, one of them realized they, they've been healed. He turned back, and what does he do? He, he first glorifies God with, with a loud voice. This is a phrase that Luke uses a lot just to convey he was very emotional, right? He was excited. He, he was yelling praise to God, and then he falls on his face at Jesus' feet in worship. Why would he worship this man? Just because of the healing? Or did he recognize who Jesus was in that moment? And then finally, he, he gives thanks to Jesus. He is so overcome with gratitude that he thanks him, him for, for being healed. He, he could have... After seeing that he was healed, he could have continued on to the temple. He could have run back to maybe uh, friends or family and try to get, you know, to, to, to show them that he, he could join their, their lives again. But the first thing that he does is go straight to Jesus and thank him. And then Luke, what I think is just absolutely incredible storytelling, he drops this, this, little, this little nugget that's, Unbeknownst to us, just a huge part of the story. He says, oh, by the way, this guy was a Samaritan. A Samaritan. This is, this is a big deal, okay? And, and he's kind of dropping it in at the end of the story. Have you guys seen Sixth Sense? If you, don't, if you haven't, I'm about to ruin it for you, okay? Imagine if you just knew the guy was dead the whole time. How good would that movie have been, Right? And again, if you haven't seen it, he's dead the whole time, okay? So, sorry. Um, that's kind of what Luke is doing here. He's like, he's taking a huge piece of information and kind of slipping it in after the story. Because Jesus asked, where are the other nine? Well, well who were the other nine? They were Jewish men. And he's pointing out this, this one that returned is the Samaritan. Now, we, we've, there, there's just so much symbolism here, and I'm, we're going to get into just a little bit of it. But, but for starters, have you, have you noticed how often Jesus uses Samaritans as kind of the, the hero of the story? I mean, it happens quite a bit. So what's significant about that? Well, well in this particular instance, the one that returned to Jesus, the one that, that recognized his, his divinity— 
is a Samaritan. The other nine were Jews. This is symbolic of, of the nation of Israel rejecting the deity of Christ. And we've talked a lot about relationships between Jewish people and Samaritans. Like they did not get along. They did not care for each other. Samaritans were, were kind of looked down upon. They were seen as half-breed Jews, basically. And they had a lot of disagreements. They agreed on some things, not other things. One of their biggest disagreements was where to worship. This was a, a really big deal, right? The Jewish people believed, you know, they, they had the temple in Jerusalem. That was the place to go offer your sacrifices to worship God. The, the Samaritans believed it was Mount Gerizim. So, so think through that for just a second. You've just had Jesus tell all ten to go to the priest and show themselves. He doesn't specify which priests, right? He, he gives them no clarification whatsoever. So where are they supposed to go? To each his own temple? You remember the, the, the woman at, at the well was a Samaritan woman, and, and Jesus meets her there. They have this conversation about being thirsty and living water, and she kind of realizes there's something different about him, and she calls him rabbi, and she asks him a question. She's like, hey, clear this up for me. Where are we supposed to worship? Is it Jerusalem, like you guys say, or is it Mount Gerizim? And Jesus basically tells her, listen, you you, you, don't, you don't understand. See, see, I am the Messiah. I am the new temple. Like, there's no need for a temple. A after what's about to happen with me and the fact that I'm coming to, to kind of change everything, change the whole entire system, that there will be no reason to have this physical place that represents God's spirit because his spirit will be inside of you. He tells her, listen, now that I'm here, everything has changed. So the, the, the nine Jews, they're, they're headed off to their temple, to their priests, where they can once again worship God. But this, this foreigner, as Jesus calls him, he goes straight back to Jesus. How beautiful is that picture? There, there was no need to go to, to a building. He was standing in front of God incarnate. And then Jesus tells him, get up. Your faith has, has healed you. Some, translation, some translations say your faith has made you well. But again, here's another thing that we might possibly read straight past. This phrase doesn't translate to the word meaning cleansed. He used in verse 14. It doesn't translate to the word used in 15, healed. It's a different word. It's in Greek, it's sozo. Sozo, this is a familiar New Testament term for, for being saved from sin. So Jesus has, has just healed him physically, right? Then, then as this man recognizes the Messiah, worships him, he, he heals him spiritually because of his faith. The others were content with physical healing. The Samaritan knew there was something greater Jesus had to offer. There were, there were 10 that were healed. There was only one that was saved. See, we, we, we all receive the, the blessing of the cross. We're like the 10 lepers, right? Jesus died for everyone. 
but only the few that, that bow the knee to Jesus, make him Lord of their lives, is truly saved. I wonder what the ratio is in our churches even. And have you turned back to Jesus? Have you made the decision to, to fall at his feet, to, to recognize him as God, Lord of your life? Are you the Samaritan or are you the other nine? So a couple of uh, takeaways I want to get into. The first one is this. We are all lepers. We're all lepers. We're all the old lion face, right? Spiritually speaking. See, see in, in scripture, leprosy is symbolic of sin. And you, if you look, you can see the parallels here. Leprosy is slow moving. It's disfiguring. It's, it's an alienating disease. You lose a lot. You lose your sense of smell and sight and touch and taste. It starts out as a, a small spot that grows slowly and eventually takes over the whole body, condemning that person to death and separation. Like leprosy, sin is progressive. It alienates you from God and, and from, from other people. It, it takes you down piece by piece. And as scary looking and as disfigured these people with leprosy are, we look the exact same way, spiritually speaking. Again, before Jesus, before you know, we committed our lives to him and we, we had our sins forgiven, we were justified by God's grace, that's us. That, that's what we look like spiritually. That's what us being good looks like to God. An ugly, disfigured mess. Like the lepers, we have no hope but for the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, once you were dead because of your disobedience, right, your many sins, again, obedience leads to God's blessing in your life. Disobedience leads to things that aren't good. Your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying who? The devil. Instead of obeying God, it's the devil. It's either one or the other. The commander of the powers in the unseen world, he is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey. Again, if, if we're not obedient to God, we're, we're being used by Satan. He's at work in our hearts. All of us used to live that way following the passionate desires and inclinations of your sinful nature. By, your very, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Our disease was incurable. Our situation was hopeless. Our lives were miserable. And Jesus offers our only chance for deliverance. Before Jesus, we were pathetic, lonely group of outcasts eking out an existence, but for God. See, like, like Jesus did for the lepers, God intervened on our behalf. And through sending Jesus for us, he offers us our only chance for, for healing, for, for integration back into the family, back into society, 
but God is so rich in mercy. He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. And for those of us that are Jesus followers, he's Lord of our lives, we, we mustered up what, what little faith we had and we obediently bowed the knee to Jesus and we begged the master to heal us. And the transformation that happened, we went from horribly disfigured, ugly messes to, to now what Paul writes in Colossians, that we stand before the throne of God, perfect and holy and blameless, without a single fault. That's the miracle of healing that Jesus did for us. He made us whole. So what did the Samaritan do? The first thing he did, remember, he praised God. He praised God. He, he immediately, with a loud voice, right, not caring who heard, not worried about what people would think of him, he immediately, with a loud voice, gave praise to God. He gave God the glory. He took no credit on his own. He recognized his helplessness, his unworthiness, and what, what God had done. He, he, he wanted to tell the world about it. You think he didn't tell that story the rest of his life? The story of what God did for him? Because he, he knew he was hopeless without what Jesus did for him. It was only by the grace and the power of God. And just like we just read in that, that verse, it is only by God's grace that we have been saved. It's, it's only because of him. What are you doing to make his name known? What story are you telling? Clayton talked last week, you know, about running on empty and, and, and challenging us to, to, based on the gospel and the, the resurrection of Jesus, like running our lives with, with passion and purpose, making our primary goal in life, like our, our primary calling, no matter what your vocation is, to make his name known, to give him glory, to lift him up. How are we doing with that? He praised God. He worshiped. He worshiped God. He, he ran straight back to Jesus and he worshiped at his feet. Man, worship is just a beautiful, beautiful thing. If we could fully understand it, worship is about submission and reverence and humility. It's, it's so important in the life of a believer because it kind of, in that, that moment resets our relationship with God. It like puts us in the proper position, right? It, it's, it's us kneeling before him, humbling ourselves, bowing the knee, saying that he is great and we are not. It, it's vocalizing the, the truth of the gospel. We, every single week we come together and of course you can worship anywhere all the time. We're supposed to be living lifestyles of worship, submission to God. But we get this opportunity once a week to come together to, to sing songs to him. What's that even about? It's about singing back to God the truths of who he is, the, the, the beautiful truths of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us. It's no different than what this leper was doing at the feet of Jesus. Like in view of everything that he's done for me, I'm just overwhelmed in this moment and I want to worship my 
Savior. Back in Luke 10, you had Mary and Martha. You remember they were hosting this kind of banquet, this party, this dinner. And Martha's busy doing all the important stuff and she gets ticked off at her sister because she's in there just sitting. Where is she sitting? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, I'm, I'm not taking that away from her because she is choosing the better thing. A few chapters before that, in chapter 7, you had the, the Pharisee and the sinful woman. The, this Pharisee was hosting a dinner again, and you had Jesus there, and this, this sinful woman was sitting at Jesus' feet. Doing what? She was worshiping him. She was weeping, wiping his, his feet with her hair. And then she, she takes her most prized possession, this fragrant oil, this perfume, and pours it out on his feet, like literally pouring out everything she had in worship. Is that what your worship looks like? See, worship brings intimacy with God. It brings closeness, oneness. You had this leper that was at a distance, right? A long ways off from Jesus, a lot of distance separating him. He's healed. He runs straight back to Jesus and worships him at his feet. He, he went from a distance to closeness. He could have run home to, to family or friends or whatever. He went straight back to Jesus first. He spent time at his feet. And then finally, he, he thanked God. Guys, this is so huge for us. He was filled with gratitude. He was thankful. Scripture tells us over and over and over to be thankful. Here's some of the reasons that we're given in Scripture to be thankful for God's deliverance, for him loving us and being faithful, for hearing our cry, for a safe arrival after a long journey, for other believers and for the testimony of their faith, for the gift of salvation, for the deliverance from sin, for the spiritual gift of being able to address God, to approach his throne for resurrection hope, for testimony and deliverance and victory in the midst of persecution, for those who respond to God's word, for being able to serve others for God and for his attributes. And, and those are just some of the reasons we have. Do you notice that list has absolutely nothing to do with all of our stuff and our possessions? And sometimes we stop short with that, right? Like, should we be grateful for the things God has given us? Like the thing, the stuff, the, the fact we live in the, the wealthiest nation in the history of the world? Of course we should, at the very least. But at the core of it all, the, the cry of our heart should be the overwhelming gratitude we should be feeling that, that's driving us to our knees in worship because of the simple truth of the gospel and what Jesus did for us. He didn't just make our lives better. It wasn't just about him improving our lives. Like he literally saved our lives. He, he brought us from death to life. And if we could ever just grasp that, the only response we will have is in humility and worship and gratitude. 
that song we, we sang to start the service. For the cross you bore and the debt you paid, for the victory you won over the death and the grave, these are the reasons that I sing. For the hope you give, the joy you bring, for the promise that heaven is waiting for me. These, these are the truths of the gospel of Jesus, what he's done in our lives, and it should drive us to worship him in gratitude. But we forget. A lot of us have been in church a long time. We've heard all this a thousand times. We, the, the newness kind of wears off if we're being honest, right? We forget about what Jesus did for us. Think about that fire you had when you, when you first experienced God's grace and love in your life for the very first time. But the fire continued to, to die out. We, 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 just, we just kind of take it for granted. We forget that the incredible gift that God gave us. How different would your life look? Your attitude, your relationships, your choices. If every single day you reminded yourself that you were the leper. How, how much gratitude would you have for God? P parents, how amazing is it when your kids are grateful and say thank you? Or how about how rare is it? It's rare. Jennifer was saying the other day, our, our oldest son, Aiden, he's, he's 16, just randomly said, I, I love you, mom. And that made her whole week. Why is that? I remember when we first had kids, we were living in San Antonio. My daughter, who's 20 now, was just barely you know, walking and talking. And I would come home from work and she would, she'd run up to me, arms up, <laughs> daddy, daddy, daddy. I miss those days. What is it in our hearts that long to hear our kids say that to us? I mean, we, we, we want our kids to, to love us and want to, to be with us. There's, there's nothing selfish in that. Like, I want some kind of credit or some kind of thank you because you owe me something. It's because we love them so very much. And we're made in the image of our heavenly father. So of course, our father in heaven so longs to be with us, for us to, to, to engage with him, to praise him, to worship him, to thank him, to spend time with him, to be excited to be in his presence. Why? Because we, we owe him? It's because he, he loves us so much. Then you have the other side of the coin. 
ingratitude, ungratefulness. Gratitude that's not expressed is expressed as ingratitude. I had a buddy of mine was telling me a story. He was hosting this dinner, had a lot of people over, cooked all this food. And there's a guy that was invited that came. He came late. He walked in, didn't, didn't acknowledge the, the host, you know, was the first one in line for food, didn't compliment anything, didn't speak, just left without saying anything. What does that make you feel? Like, who would do that? We do it all the time. We, we, we take God and all he's done for us and just his presence in our lives, we take it all for granted. We, we, we treat it so casually. How do you approach your heavenly father? Is it with love and gratitude and humility and reverence or is it with apathy? and indifference. You know, I've been in church my whole life. I've been part of worship teams since I was probably, you know, 13 or something for, for 30 years. I've been leading worship multiple times a week for almost 25 years. I think, I think worship is something we, we sometimes just don't really understand. We get how it works or whatever, but I think, I think there's some, some misunderstanding that, that happens at times about what it is we're supposed to be doing. What's it supposed to look like? You know, are we supposed to raise our hands? Are we supposed to kneel or, you know, is there a way to do it right and a way to do it wrong? And to me, you know, <laughs> regardless of what church you grew up in or what you're used to or whatever the style of worship was, like there's only one way to worship God. And that's with everything that you have. There is no such thing as half-hearted worship. It's an oxymoron. with everything you have. And of course, that's going to look different for everyone. If we're talking practically, that's going to come through, you know, the filter of your personality. Some are extroverted, some are introverted, but, but here's, here's a fact. If you truly worshiping God with everything that you have, if you're really like, like that, that sinful woman pouring out everything you have at the feet of Jesus, it's going to show on the outside. And when it doesn't show, Usually the reason for that is our own pride in us. I, and I'm guilty of it too. When I, sometimes even up here, but especially when I'm sitting out there, you know, it's like, what do people expect me to do? And, and am I, or, you know, if I don't raise my hands, are they going to think I'm not, you know, it's like all, we have all these thoughts that are people, what if I, I don't sing very good? What if I sing too loud? I don't want to be embarrassed. And I don't want people to think I'm some kind of weirdo if I raise my hands or decide to kneel or whatever else. And, and what happens when those kinds of thoughts are going through our heads, guess what? We're not worshiping God anymore. We're worshiping us. 
so my encouragement for you, we're gonna have some time, obviously, at the end of the service to, to worship. And it's not just to give us a break from all the talking. It really is a meaningful time to, to connect you, to connect those dots, to, to make sure that we don't forget what Jesus has done for us as we sing back to him the things that he's done and all he's, he's blessed us with and, and who he is. And it's a, a, that opportunity for intimacy with God. And, and when his presence is working in our lives, listen, you will change. God doesn't always change our situations. You know, we talked about healing or whatever else, but, but when we are in God's presence and we are fully enveloped in, in him and we're, we're engaged with him, his presence will change you. So what does that look like for you? What does taking a step forward in worship look like to you? Maybe it is not being afraid to, to lift your hands. And all that is, that's nothing magical, right? And besides that, God, you know, he, he makes it very clear in Scripture through his spanking of the Pharisees constantly. He, he doesn't care about the outward show. You can fake all that. He, he's looking at your heart, right? So, so start there. Like, what's going on in your heart? What's going on in your mind? And, and what's, what's he, how's he asking you to be obedient? Like, are you, are you reserved? Are you, are you insecure? Or are you pouring yourself out, uh, self out to, to him in worship? So, as we, as we worship, so allow God to, to answer those questions for you. Like, what does it look like for you to worship him with everything that you have? What are you holding back from him? Are you really grateful for what he's done in your life? And how are you gonna respond to him in that? We, we are lepers that have been cleansed eternally and divinely healed. Let's respond like the Samaritan. Let's realize and recognize the extent to which we have been healed and saved and all we've been saved from, all we've been given. And let's, let's run to Jesus. Let's fall at his feet and let's worship him with gratitude. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. And we, I, I confess, I'm so bad at this. I'm so slow to give you credit, give you glory. I want to take that for myself. I don't, I don't even, you know, pay attention to answered prayers. And, and God, I pray that you would just remind us of all you've done for us and that we would respond the only way that we can. We can't repay it, God. We, 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 we can't, you know, we owe you a great debt, but that we, that we can't pay. And so all we have to give you is us, God. We, we, we humbly bow at your feet. And we worship you with sincere gratitude. And God, I pray that that's not just a, a song singing thing in our lives, but it's, it's a lifestyle every single morning, waking up, thanking you, God, living lives of gratitude for all you've done. We love you so much, Jesus. In your name, amen.